Good morning on this cold and wet morning. I hope it uh, soaks your gardens really well. Uh, before we go to the Lord and, and we try to do, do our preaching porting service, I'd like to uh, uh, take a moment and pray. Do we have any prayer requests or thanksgivings? None this morning? Yes, ma'am. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Nehemiah? We've been working our way through that book. Last week we uh, looked at chapters 6 and 7. I'd like to continue this study and go to chapter 8. Let me just read the first verse, chapter 8 and verse 1. <clears throat> i got to admit, this is probably one of my favorite uh, chapters in the Old Testament, chapter 8. And uh, as we go through, you'll probably see why. But let me just read verse 1 for just a second. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street and was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. One of the things I'd like to point out is, I'm going to put my ribbon here. We're going to do a little bit of backtracking. Go to Ezra 7 for just a second. Ezra is the preceding book. Ezra 7, and we're going to see here, it's in verse... Uh, um, 9, I believe, verse 8. <clears throat> this is the same man, Ezra. And it says, He came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For upon him, the first day of the month, he began he to go up from Babylon. And the first and the fifth month, he came he to Jerusalem, according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach Israel statutes and judgments. The thing I'd like to pick out of that one, it says in the seventh year of the king. Now let's go to Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5. And we're going to find out that I believe we're in year 32 of the king. Okay. Chapter 5 and verse 14 Moreover, from the time that I was appointed, this is Nehemiah speaking, I was appointed to be the governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year unto the 2 and 30th year of Artaxerxes the king. I believe that if we look at this chronology, we see Ezra got a burden in his heart to study the word of God, to, to, to get himself into a position where he would be able to preach it, and he started really hitting the books. And here it is, 25 years later, and he finally gets us his chance to preach the word. Now, last night in our family devotion, I read just verse 1, and I was trying to uh, um, stress the excitement this preacher must have felt, and my girls didn't get it. So I looked at them and I said, let's pretend you got engaged, and the wedding date was set 25 years out in front. Okay? Even Hope went, ugh. I said, when that day finally came, don't you think you'd just be a little bit excited? And she said, yeah. Brother Ethan, let's suppose you prepared for a football game for 25 years. You think, I need a walker by then, right? But let's say all of a sudden that game came. Don't you think you'd be excited to play that game? Brother Andrew, let's suppose you were building your house for 25 years. Okay? And finally you got to move in. Don't you think that would be pretty exciting? You'd say, ah, this house is too big. All my kids are grown up and gone by now, right? But, but here it is. 
25 years later, so here's this preacher, and he's preparing a sermon for 25 years. I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. And finally, this says, hey, would you preach to us? This guy must have been just shouting happy, okay? So that's where we're at. Nehemiah finally says, would you read the Bible to us? And he says, I've been waiting 25 years for this opportunity. You know, sometimes I study God's word, and it's Tuesday, and I can't wait till Sunday to share what I've had. I can't imagine sitting there preparing. You know, how many times he's preached and re-preached that sermon as he was walking down the road? Well, there he is. So he's getting this opportunity. So let's read this verse again. And, and, and let's try to glean what we can out of this. <clears throat> Ezra's got to be just shouting happy right now. Okay? And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. I think that's a really interesting phrase, they gathered as one man. When we come to the New Testament and we're looking at the day of Pentecost when, or the time right before Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, there was all those people in that upper room. There's about 100 of 20 of them. And it says they were of one accord. In Philippians 2 and verse 2, it says they were of the same love and of the same mind. My friends, we read in chapter 1 that you're not going to have revival in a person unless you start with repentance. Well, you're not going to have a revival in a church unless you have one mind, one man, one love, and one accord. It just won't happen. When I go to the New Testament and I look at the church at Corinth, the word division is used a lot in that book. Right out of the chute in chapter 1, he said, is Christ divided? See, remember in that church there was a group of people, and one man said, you know what? Peter's my favorite preacher. And another one says, I like Apollos. And another one said, I like Paul. Evidently, Paul was more reason type. My guess is he was the teacher. Apollos was this real fluent, eloquent guy. And I'm guessing Peter was probably the charismatic guy out of the dude. He was the blue collar, just whoop them all up. And they all had their favorites. And you know what Paul said? He said, I thank God I baptized none of you. Can you imagine a preacher saying that to a congregation? They were divided. My friends, that church is not going to have revival. And then you go all the way to chapter 11, and that was another time he fussed at him. Paul did. He says, I hear there's divisions among you. There were the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the not-so-rich. There were the blue bloods, the ones with primitive backward heritages, and there's the new converts. There was the homeschoolers and the public schoolers. Now, I'm not saying the church has got together and everybody's got a home school, everybody's got a public school. But that's not it. But there was divisions among them and they were thinking one was better than another. And Paul said, knock it off. Nothing good's going to happen when there's divisions among you. Well, this is what they did is they stood as one man. My friends, this is really important. Can you think of a football? There's a movie that, that we have at home. <clears throat> it's, it's actually one of, one of, the, one of my... Uh, more favorite movies that I used to bring out for the kids, especially the boys. I can't even remember the name of it, but I can picture the title on the VHS. And it's a it's a it's a it's a high school football uh, player, and it was somewhere set somewhere in Alabama. And in this particular movie, um, there was a high school football team, and the town hit some really wealthy man set aside some money in a trust to set up a collar scholarship for the best football player. And what happened was is the, 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 the season started and all the football players' goal was to get the scholarship. 
So the halfback was hogging the ball. The quarterback was trying to show off. The defensive players were trying to show off. And the team was just getting clobbered. And then finally, as the movie went on, a couple games into the season, the town council came and said, hey, we're broke. There's no money left. And all of a sudden, they started playing it as a team, and they started winning. Well, that's the same thing. We've got to be the same thing. We've got to be of one accord and one mind. When everybody's trying to do their own thing or get their own glory or be their own big shot or be the boss, my friends, nothing's going to happen. And when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, when he said that, he says, I thank God I baptized none of you. He says, you know what? It's not about Peter. It's not about Paul. And it's not about Paulus. Who's it all about? Anybody? It's all about Jesus Christ. He's their goal, okay? I've heard it said this way, and I pray that that's the case. I I heard this a long time ago. You may have heard the analogy. When I preach, what I pray is it would be like if I stood up here and held up a great big painting of Jesus Christ, and as I held it up, all you could see was a couple fingernails on each side of the painting, and you didn't see me at all. All you did was see Jesus Christ. I pray to God that's the way that it is when I preach. I hope it's got nothing to do with Dolph or any other of the men that came over the last several years, I pray it's all about Jesus Christ. And that's the only one way we'll become as one man or we'll be of one accord. Okay? Let's go back here. Here's something else that's really important. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring... What did they ask him to bring? They asked him to bring God's word. They didn't ask them to bring anything else. They asked them to bring God's word. And back then, I told you, I shared this last night. All I did was read verse 1 with my children last night. Hope said, but they didn't have the Bible like we have. Emma said, yeah, we've got 66 books. How many did they have, Daddy? Five. Five. Is that all? I said, if I preached on those five books... I lived the rest of my life and I couldn't exhaust all that's in there. Five books. They were hungry for the Word of God. But that's all they needed. That's all they wanted. That's really important. I pray to God if I bring anything in front of you other than that, you'll say, Brother Dolph, we want to hear the Word of God. Get that other stuff away. We want to hear the Word of God. Occasionally I'll come up and I'll bring something to illustrate a point or to do it. Jesus used farming parables and marketing parables and different things. And I'll use something to illustrate a point. But that's not where I get my authority or I prove my doctrine. There it is. Okay? <clears throat> Brother, um, this, this, this was something that happened um, in the last week or two. Brother Danny gave me a series of, 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 of tapes. It was six tapes. I asked for them and it was about another preacher. You know, um, that was not Primitive Baptist. And it was on a, a, a subject, a very controversial subject called on divorce. And he said, Dolph, there's some good stuff in here. It's not, I don't agree with all of it. And I said, that's fine. So I was listening to it. And about everything, I went through the first couple tapes. And I thought, interesting. Oh, there's some information I didn't know about. And yeah, that, that seems to make sense. And all of a sudden, we got to the, I got to the third tape. And the preacher said, and this is where the translators erred. And I thought, wow. I mean, it was, it, was, it was like someone just clubbed me upside the head with a two-by-four. This is the question. See, when I hear something like that, this is what I ask. I said, what source did he use to say the Bible was wrong? 
Do you understand when someone says the translator's error? They said the Bible is wrong. So what piece of information or what source did he use to say this is right and that's wrong? And it was on his own opinion. He says, I believe this and the translator's error. So this means this and this means this. And all of a sudden his house of cards started tumbling down. I'm not doing that to, to pick on another preacher. The tape, the series that he gave me, he gave me a lot of good information. But it was like eating the chicken and throwing away the bones. So I was glad he shared it with me. But I don't want to hear the words of Brother Dolph. I don't want to hear another source. What I want to hear is the Word of God. And when you come to me and you say, I want you to preach the Word of God, I pray to God that's, that's what I preach. And that's where my authority comes from. And the day I come to you and I say the translator's error, whoa, what source did you use to say the Bible was wrong? I guarantee you it's something else that's uninspired. And then we're going to be in a whole lot of hurt. Okay? All right. <coughs> okay, I've, I've read verse 1 is kind of introductory. Let me read the whole paragraph. The whole paragraph is, goes all the way from verse 1 to verse 8. So I'm going to read 1 through 8. <coughs> it's kind of an introduction there. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe, Bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, be from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. I'm guessing from morning till midday, I'm guessing that's probably about three hours. These, and we're going to find out that Ezra had some help. There was 14 people on that pulpit. As we read this, there's a list of people. There's six on his left and seven on his right. And these 14 people evidently read scripture for about three hours. And the people were attentive. Okay? That means none of them fell asleep. Got it? All right, verse 4. And Ezra the scribe stood upon the pulpit of wood, which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matithathiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkiah, and Maasiah, on his right hand. And on his left hand was Pediah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam. Next time I read that list, I'm going to ask Brother Kyle to read that for me, okay? All right, verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. Again, they built a pulpit. The only reason they did it was for a practical purpose, so simply he could be higher, everybody could see him, and they could hear him a little bit better. For he was above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Have you ever been in a church service when um, someone maybe came in a little late or had to go to the bathroom or someone was dealing with a crying baby? Have you ever noticed that when the Bible was being read, people will come and go and sit down and do all that? But when we're praying, people will stop and wait for the prayer to be over. 
Do you think it might be true the other way around? When we're hearing God's words, that's when we stop. And when we're hearing man's words, that's when we keep on going. Think so? I don't know. It's just kind of one of those wild... I, I kind of think off in left field sometimes. Okay? But when God's word was being spoken, they stopped. They stood up. Wow, this is the word of God. If you really believe all words are inspired by God, 2 Corinthians 3.16, 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, it's by the inspiration of God. You know what inspired means? It means breathed. When God speaks, when the Bible is being read, God's speaking. Does that make you stand still and take reverence? Those people did. Okay? Verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and he opened it, and all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're showing more reverence to the word of God. Also, Jeshua and Benai and uh, Sherebiah and Jamin and Akub and Shabbatai and Hodijah and Maasiah, Kilita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites caused the people to understand the law of the people, and the people stood in their place. <clears throat> Verse 8. So they read in the book, in the law of God distinctly, and they gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. I love that phrase. When they were done preaching, the people understood the word of God. And I want to spend a good deal of time talking about those two phrases. They read in the book of the law distinctly and gave the sense. <clears throat> when we talk about reading the word of God distinctly, that means defining the words According to the Bible, it means paying attention to grammar. It means using sound reasoning. It means minding the context. My friends, we have to do that every time we go to God's word. And when we ignore those things, I will not cause you to understand the word of God. I will cause you to misunderstand the word of God. As, I don't know if any of you have been in the lunchroom, but we've uh, uh, I, last week I said I'd like to re-implement the Wednesday night service and uh, got really good feedback, so we're going to do that. We'll start that on um, Wednesday, uh, the first Wednesday in September. I guarantee you my first uh, six or seven messages on that Wednesday night will be how to interpret the Bible. I figure why study the Bible if you don't know how to interpret it? Why give you a bunch of math problems if you don't know how to add and subtract and multiply and divide? And that's what we're going to do. This is a lesson on how to interpret the Bible. How? You read distinctly and you give the sense. And Lord willing, we've got to do it with every verse of the Bible. Now, I'm going to go to two verses and I'm going to compare and contrast them. Okay? The first, both of them are ones you've heard many times. And I think I've even referenced this before. 
The first one is in <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1.15. We're talking about Bible interpretation. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 2.15. This is the command. It says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed of rightly dividing the word of truth. What happens when you divide something? Usually you tear it apart. Is that right? When I, when I look at a sentence and, and, and I try to figure out what's going on in the sentence, look at the noun, look at, look at the verbs, look at past tense, present tense, cause and effect, you know, figure out timelines, what's being done, who's being done to. When I look at that stuff, you know what I'm doing? I'm dividing the word. I'm tearing it apart. And that's what we'll do is when we look at scripture, we'll tear it apart. When I go into a verse and I'm looking at a verse in the middle and someone says, Brother Dolph, what does this mean? You know where I always go back? I always go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Who's it being written to? Why is it being written? Who's writing it? What's the time frame? And then you start working it forward and you get the context. You know what that doing? That's tearing apart scripture trying to figure out what's going on. Now let me contrast that to a verse you've probably heard many times. And let's go to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28. <clears throat> Let me read verse 13. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Have you ever heard that before? I try not to preach that way. Because when I preach that way, look what happens. That they might go and fall back and be broken and snared and taken. Wow. That's not the way I'm used to hearing it. I'm going to go back and read this passage in a second. But what this is, is God is talking to Israel in a judgment. And it says, you're not listening to the word of God. So when you listen to the word of God, you know what it's like? It's like an old typewriter that when you type and you have to hit the carriage return, but the paper didn't roll. And you type again, and it's line upon line upon line, and when you're done, there's a bunch of gobbledygook, and you can't make sense of it. That's what this is talking about. Let's back up and read it. Let's start at verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak unto his people. Does that sound good? The answer is no. To whom he said, this is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest... For this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. The people would not hear the word of God. But means a contrast. But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall back and be broken and taken and snared and, and taken. I pray to God, I don't take a bunch of verses and I just pile them on one on top of another. To build my case. I'm going to do right the opposite. I'm going to go into a text and tear it apart. As opposed to pile them up and try to prove a case. You think I'm not used to hearing the Bible that way. Well I think you probably are. I think you probably are. And as Lord willing as we go forward. When we go to scripture. We're going to tear apart scripture. And see what it is. As opposed to piling it up. And try to build a case for something that I believe. What's the difference? They read distinctly and they gave the sense. 
What, 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 what do I, what did I do? You know, again, that's my, maybe it's the teacher in me. Maybe it's the way I was trained by my father in the ministry. Maybe it's the way that I've preached and I've seen people get all scrunched up five hours and I know they didn't get it. And then when I preach the other way, they go, oh, that makes sense. Before we started Nehemiah, I spent a whole Sunday doing what? Setting the context of Ezra to find out what was going on before Nehemiah showed up on the scene. Now as we go and we read forward, I pray it makes more sense. I pray it causes you to understand what the Bible's talking about. There's a difference. Tearing apart scripture versus piling it on and making a case. I can pick a half a dozen verses and ignore what's above it and below it and prove just about anything. You've seen people do that, haven't you? But what happens when you take it and you start? John 3.16, you see that at football games all the time. What do you do about John 3.16? The answer is, start at John 3.1, right? We go back and we figure out, oh, there's a man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is talking to Jesus. And Jesus is asked three questions. And Jesus gives three answers. And John 3.16 is the second part of answer question number three. How are you going to answer that? I know. Go back and look at question number one, answer number one. Question number two, answer number two. Question number three. And then let's see what the answer is. Oh, that's what it means. You understand line upon line, precept upon precept? You get confused. As Sonny Powell says, you get confused more than a termite and a yo-yo. That's what will happen as opposed to tearing things apart. My friends, that's what we'll do. Read distinctly. I might even diagram a sentence on you, okay? I got to admit, I'm a math guy. I'm not too good at that kind of thing. But sometimes to figure out what's going on in Paul's writing, sentences can be 12 verses long sometimes. You ever look at some of those buts and ands and therefores? They're all there. And it's important to figure out who's the subject, what's being talking about, what's the time frame, what's the reason for the writing, and then you can understand what's going on. And that is the only way will ever be of one mind, will be one man, will be of one accord, will have the same love towards another. That's the only way. Because if you go with your opinion and you go with your opinion and I want to go with my feeling and I want to bring in this piece of information and I want to go with this historical document, we're going to be all over the map. It's the only way we can stand as one man. And they did. They stood as one man. Okay? So we're looking at a people and they love the word of God. In Job 23 and verse 12, I'm not going to turn there. But Job said, the word of God is more precious than my necessary food. Psalm 119 and verse 127 says, the word of God is more precious than all the gold in the world. The Bible, great big pile of gold. Which one are you going to pick? Okay. David says, I'm going with the word of God. You don't believe me? Look at every multi-million dollar lottery winner. He flat, fell flat on his face. Terrible shape. Lost family. Lost all his money in a very short period of time. It's not going to work. The word of God is what's going to deliver you. Okay? All right, let's go to the next uh, uh, paragraph. <clears throat> back to Nehemiah 8. A lot of good stuff in here. We'll double back and hit a lot of this stuff on Wednesday night. Let me read the next, par- next 
next paragraph. The next paragraph is 9 through 12. <coughs> and Nehemiah, which is the Tereshitha, and Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God, more not nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Okay? Now, there is something going on here, and based on what is going on here, I can't tell if the weeping is because they're happy. It says mourn, so I think it's probably they're more sad. They're being convicted by their sin. Or they're convicted for having walked away from God and God judged them and left them in a place where they hadn't worshipped in a while. I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. But all I know is when the word was preached, they were affected. And when they understood it, they were pricked in their hearts and they responded and they mourned. But I love Nehemiah and Ezra's response. They said, guys, you don't get it. This is not a time to mourn. It's a time to throw a great big old party. Okay? You think, really? Yeah, in Luke chapter 15, there's a lesson taught. Jesus Christ is teaching. And there's teach, he taught three lessons. And the first lesson is, is a man had a hundred sheep, one of the sheep got lost, and the sheep came back. And he said, the angels in heaven rejoice for the found sheep. You know what he said? He says, when one comes back, and one's mourning, and one's repentant, and one comes back, he says, it's time to throw a party. The second lesson he taught was of a woman that had ten pieces of money. One of the pieces of money got lost. She found it, and she said, and, and Jesus Christ said, the angels in heaven Rejoice when one that was lost was found. And the third story was the parable of the prodigal son. And I think I've shared with you before, I think that had a bad title. I think the parable should be called the parable of the prodigal son's brother. I think that's what the story is really all about. Because what happened was, here was the son and he blew all his inheritance on wine, women, and song. He comes back home. Dad throws him a great big party. And his brother sits there going, you never threw me a party. And the father says, he was dead and now he's alive. He's back. It's time to throw a party. This is what the same principle I believe Nehemiah is doing. Is when they hear the word of God, these people are pricked. I'm telling you what, if, if I preach a message and I preach it on sin... And I see tears coming down. I'm rejoicing. Because you're crying. The angels in heaven are. Do you understand? That's a time to be happy. And here's a congregation that hears the word of God and they're pricked to tears. And he says, this is a good thing. Let's celebrate. You get it? All right. Verse 10. Then he said unto them, <coughs> go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet. And send portions unto them whom ha who nothing is prepared. For this is the holy day unto the Lord. Neither be ye sorry, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. They were pricked. They were convicted. And he says, it's time to throw a party. And look out around. There might be some poor people among you. Give them some food so they can have a party too. This is a time for rejoicing. That's a good thing. Verse 11. So the Levites stilled it. The people saying, hold your peace, for the day is holy, neither be ye grieved. 
And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Wow, what a reason to throw a party. Why have primitive Baptists thrown parties? Well, we've thrown parties for 100-year anniversaries. We've thrown parties because we got a new building built. Have we ever thrown a party because the people got it? Sounds kind of funny, doesn't it? We understood it. Let's throw a party. That's what Nehemiah said. Throw this party. They got it. Wasn't that great? I think I shared you probably the craziest pastoring thing I ever did. Got Ernie involved in this one. Sister Cindy's smiling. She's nodding. She remembers this one. And there's a man that had been out of the church for over 30 years. He, com- he committed infidelity some 30-some years ago. And then finally I was working with him a little while and he started coming back to church. And he came back to church for a whole year. And finally after church on one Sunday he said, he said, do you think they'll take me back? And I said, I know they take you back. I said, next Sunday you come and you present yourself. So he did. And I did it at the beginning of service. I didn't wait to the end of the service. I did the beginning of service. I said, Brother so-and-so, he's got something he wants to say to y'all. So I give him the floor. And he did. And he looked at all the young people in the eye. And he says, I messed up big time. He says, don't do what I did. I've been paying for it all my life. I've been out of the church all my life. I had fellowship all my life. Here I am on the outside. And I says, I've been missing it. And I did it all to myself. There wasn't a dry eye in the place. They took him back in. We had to embrace him. Gave him the right hand of fellowship. He was a full-fledged member. Then I got on the stand, and I went to Luke 15. And I did, and I read that passage over there. And I said, Brother, I don't have a robe for you, and I don't have a ring for you. I don't have new shoes for you. I said, But we have killed the fatted calf for you. And this is out back. Brother Warren and Brother Ernie are cooking two cases in New York strips. The Bible says eat and be merry, and that's what we're going to do. I closed my Bible. I said, sermon's over. That was it. That was the 90-second sermon. Okay, I preached the 90-second sermon. Kids loved it. Is that it? Yeah, that's it, Dad. I think it is it. And we're done. And we ate, and we're married. Now, they probably, those kids, there were some young ones there. I don't know how much they'll remember about my message on predestination and election and the effectual call and total depravity. But I guarantee you they're going to remember that sermon. The 90-second sermon. Why? Because it was a time to rejoice. It was time to throw a party. When a sinner repents and comes to the back to the knowledge of the Lord, it's time to throw a party. And the people understood the word, and they got excited, and they rejoiced. Praise the Lord. It's time to throw a party. I'd love to throw those kind of parties. Okay? I did it. I got a brother-in-law that works for Cisco. It's a supplier of restaurants. I got it through him. All two cases. I got a real good deal on it. I'll, I'll buy the, I'll buy another fatted calf. We'll do that. I'd love to do something like that again. Okay, back to scripture. <clears throat> Let's read the next paragraph. The next paragraph is the 13 through 15. I'm still in Nehemiah 8, 13 through 15. <clears throat> <coughs> and <on> this... <coughs> <coughs> Does, does someone? Ha- I'm losing my voice here. Does someone have a cough drop or, a, 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 or something for me? Uh, I appreciate it. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 
<clears throat> had about six of you popped up, and the front row got it first. Thank you all. <clears throat> and on the second day, we're gathered together, the chief of the fathers and of all the people and the priests and the Levites unto Ezra the scribe, even to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in the booths in the feasts of the seventh month, and that they should publish and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go forth unto the mount and fetch olive branches and pine branches and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of thick trees to make booths as it is written. So what they're doing is they're going back to Leviticus 23. I can tell you that's where they were reading. Back in Leviticus 23, it's a record of seven feasts that the um, people of Israel used to keep. And the, the Feast of Booths was the seventh of those seven feasts. The first one was the Passover. And there was the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Atonement and the Feast of Trumpets. There was a whole bunch of those. But this was called the Feast of Booths. And what they were supposed to do is this was an eight-day celebration, and it was always in the seventh month, and all the details are recorded in, in Leviticus 23 about, I don't know, the very last eight or ten verses of that chapter. But basically what they were supposed to do is they were supposed to build a tent. Okay? Now, they didn't have canvas and aluminum poles, so they built one, and they went out, and they got branches, and they got palm branches, and they got a tent. And some people built these tents on the roofs because they had flat roofs then. Some of them built them in the courts behind their house. Some of them built them on their front lawn. Some of them built them in the streets. But they were supposed to move out of their house in their nice, safe, home, warm place. And they were supposed to live in these booths for eight days. You think, why did God make them do that? It was a memorial to remember when God had delivered Israel out of Egypt and they had to wander around for 40 years without a home. And that was to remind them God delivered you out of bondage, and this is to remember the time when he did you and you had to wander around 40 years without a home. So when you got back into your home, you appreciated what you had and what God did for you. And that was the Feast of the Booths. So here we are, we're having this worship service, and this is, looks like it's day two of this worship service. The first time they were pricked and, and they were crying. And God says, no, don't, no, no, no. Nehemiah said, no, 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 it's not time for a crime. It's time to celebrate. We get to day two. They read about the first of Feast Booth. They find out it's in the seventh month. They go, hey, we're in the seventh month. We haven't observed this in a long time. Let's observe it. So they did. And they went out and they built themselves their little tents. And they had their palm trees and their thickets. And they keep the rain from off of them or keep the sun off of them. And they lived in the booth for eight days. But it's interesting. Now this lesson has... Two meanings. It's to remember the deliverance out of Egypt when you were wandering around. But now, it's to remember the deliverance out of Babylon when you were robbing around. And now you got a city with walls. So it's a double meaning. i got to think. But the thing I want to impress upon you is this was not for the people that went through it. This was for their children and their children's children. That's what the memorial was for. They remembered it. I love World War II monuments. I wasn't around then. I wasn't born to the late 50s. I love those monuments. Those monuments weren't for the people that went through World War II. They have all the memories. You ever sit down with them and ask them and question them? What happened? How did you do this? They'll tell you, and it's a blessing to talk to them and get those experiences. 
But I see those memorials and they remind me of things that my parents and my grandparents went through. That's what this memorial was for. Eight days to remember, wow, they had to go through this. You get just a little bit of taste and I want you to realize what it's like to live and not have a home and a solid roof over your head. That's what that memorial was for. So here the Jews were, the, the, the people here, they hear it. They said, wow, we haven't done this in a long time. It, it, it'd kind of be like Thanksgiving. Can, can you admit, in this country, let's suppose all of a sudden this country disallowed Thanksgiving. They said, you can't have a day of Thanksgiving because that honoring God and we're in a nation that doesn't honor God. And we don't want to offend anybody, so we're not going to give a Thanksgiving anymore. And all of a sudden, 70 years go by, and someone starts reading the history book, and they say, wow, our parents used to have a Thanksgiving. Let's do that again. So we had a great big Thanksgiving party. That, that's, that's basically what it is. Okay? They got excited. They read the Word of God, and they said, these people used to do it. God commanded it. We're not doing it. Let's get at it, and let's start it right now. So they did it. All right. <coughs> let's read the rest of the chapter. So the people went forth and brought them and made themselves booths, everyone upon the roof of his house and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the street of the water gate and in the street of the gate of Ephraim. So can you imagine that? They read the word of God. They said, wow, we're supposed to do this booths observance. They do it. And, and, and some people have roofs, and some people have courts, and some people don't have courts, so they build it in the, the, the they build their booth in, on the church grounds. Some build a right in the street. Some of build on the gate by the edge of the city. Wherever they can find a place, they built this booth. They says, "We want to honor God. God told us to do it, and we're going to do it." So there's booths all over the place, and that's where they're living. And it, I'm sure it was getting convenient. I like camping for about two days. Okay. Then that's about it. It's time to go home, take my hot shower, sleep in my nice warm bed. But just enough to do it. And everybody's observing this. Not just the kids where it's fun. Grandma and Grandpa were doing it too. To remember the great deliverance God did. You were wandering around. Okay? Verse 16. So the people went forth and brought them. <coughs> I read 16. Let's start with 17. In all the congregation of them that were come again out of the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Jeshua the son of Nun unto that day had not the children of Israel done so and there was very great gladness <clears throat> in the New Testament we don't have those seven feasts the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Atonement. We just have one. It's called the Communion Service. And you know what? When we do that, there's a commandment about washing feet. Happy are ye if you do them. You know when you observe that? There's go joy. John 13 says it. Nehemiah says it. This is what happened to the people of Israel that day. There was great joy. Try it. There's joy. Verse 18. Also day by day, from the first day unto the last, he read in the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day was a solemn assembly according unto the manner. Okay, there's the eight-day observance. Seven days of observing at the eighth day was a very special holy day, and they had a very special worship service on that eighth day. 
There it was. All right, Nehemiah 8. They finally get the city wall built. Nehemiah is focused. His focus was not building the wall. His focus was uninterrupted worship. The wall was a means to uninterrupted worship. When the wall was built, he just kept on going. He didn't miss a beat. He set up the porters to guard it, but he also set up the singers and the Levites because uninterrupted worship was the problem, was, was the goal. The wall was a means to the goal. So here we are. We're in a situation where the, the wall is built. The worship service set. Once the worship service set, they start worshiping. Ezra comes up, he's preparing, preaching, studying his Bible, obeying it, practicing, teaching for 25 years. He hits the ground running and he starts preaching the word. When he preaches it, it was a bang up message because the people are standing up, they're bowing, they're crying, they're celebrating, they're laughing, they're doing everything, they're wanting to obey, they're pricked. Whatever the Bible says, they said, we want to do it, we want it in our lives because that's what the God of heaven does. We know what it's like to be in bondage. We have our freedom, we're thankful for our freedom, we don't want to ignore it. That's it. So now we come to chapter 9. I'm going to give you the big picture of view of chapter 9. Chapter 9, have you ever heard a sermon? <clears throat> I call it, you know, looking at a verse. Chapter 9 is stepping up about eight steps and taking a big picture of the history of Israel. And basically what he's going to do, it's a long sermon from the standpoint of reading it, but basically it's a historical thing. And basically what he's going to do, he says, listen, you're going to see a pattern. Have you ever seen a roller coaster? You know what roller coaster is? Is you make a climb, and you get to the peak of a roller coaster, and then you go down, and then you climb up again, and you get to the peak of a roller coaster, and you go down. Well, if you ever stand back, that's basically what the book of Judges is, and the book of First Kings, I mean Samuel and Kings. Basically what happens is the Lord is really close to the people of Israel, and they're on their high. And then they start getting foot of themselves, full of themselves and prosperity comes. And they start saying, you know what, God? We don't really need you anymore. Things are going great. We got everything we need. And whew, they go down. And then they're in bondage. And then when they're in bondage, they cry out. And they say, God, help us. And slowly they start making the climb back up. And they get to the peak again. And guess what happens when they get to the peak again? Prosperity comes and they go, God, we don't need you anymore. If you go through the book of Judges, it seems like it happened probably about eight or ten times. Just in the book of Judges, where that roller coaster happens, where they're really close to God, they get full of themselves, they say, God, we don't need you anymore, and under bondage. They say, God, help us. God sends them a deliverer, they come back up, prosperity again, and down. You go through that cycle about eight or ten times in the book of Judges, you get over there and you got good kings and bad kings, same thing happens there. Basically, what's going to happen in Nehemiah 9 is he's going to talk about a roller coaster ride. And he's going to talk about a nation going on a roller coaster ride. And that's what 9 is. It's an overview of that. So, as I read that, let's see the roller coaster ride. He'll start with Abraham, and then he'll go to the judges. No, no, then he'll go to Moses. Then he'll go to the judges, and then he'll go to the kings. And he's talking about it. And he's basically he's saying, he's saying When are you going to get it? When are you going to get it? <clears throat> right now, you're on a high. Don't go on the low. Guess what happens? They go on the low. You know, I could do the same sermon about America. I could go to a, on us. We've got our waves. Probably our last real wave, real big hard wave, was during the Depression. 
and we start coming out of it, we get our economic prosperity, and we're in a great big wave of saying, God, we don't need you anymore, right? We don't need you anymore. We're doing pretty well. We got everything we need. We got everything we want. I don't know. I really don't know. I don't know if there's another down cycle when we go back up again, or if this is the last down cycle, and he says, you know what? I had enough. Enough's enough. God's like that. It says he's long-suffering, but it doesn't say he's everlasting suffering. And there comes a point in time where he says, that's it. I'm giving it to another nation. I don't know where we're at. I'm not smart enough. Everybody talks about the end times. I don't know if there's another loop here in America or that's it and he's going to move the, move the gospel somewhere else. I don't know. I'm not smart enough to do that. But I do know that we're, we've had economic prosperity, unseen economic prosperity, and we're starting to suffer some things. And even on the downslope, I look around. God, we don't need you. By the haircuts and the, the piercings and the tattoos and, and the defiance. I, I shared, I've shared something with this, <clears throat> with, with some of you. <clears throat> I've been through a culture shock for the last three weeks, and I'm not saying Roanoke's any worse than Athens, but for the last three or four weeks, <clears throat> three weeks, we've had to live in an apartment as we look for a home, and and, and that's I, there's there's nothing wrong with that, and I, and I don't mind that. But this is what the culture shock is in in our particular unit our particular building, there's 12 units. There's 12 apartments. And of these 12 apartments, over half of them is a man and a woman living together. Cohabitating is what they call it. And you know what? That absolutely floored me. It shocked me. It's like, it's like a dose in the real world. Now, I, I, I understand it. And, and I'll try to do is reach out and befriend a couple of them here and there whenever I get an opportunity. But you know what eats my lunch? Is I got four little eyeballs that are watching that. And it's desensitizing, desensitizing them. That's where our culture's gone. God, marriage, we don't need you. We can do it on our own. We're going to do a test trial. Friends, we're in we're bad shape. Our nation is. Our nation is. But there's goodness. God's good. He's long-suffering. And what we're going to do here is we're going to read a message. And I'm just, I'm just going to read this history thing. Read, see if you can pick out the roller coaster cry. And the whole time I'm reading it, say, what if we wrote a similar prayer or sermon about America? Okay? <clears throat> Nehemiah 9, and verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. This was a congregational fast. <clears throat> and the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day and another fourth part of the day they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Okay, we're going to get the sermon in just a second. Three hours, the word of God was read. We're read. You got it? Three hours, they confessed their sins and they sang worships and they praised God. Then the beginning of the seventh hour, the preacher got up and started preaching. Okay? Last week, Cinder, sister, uh, last week, sister Cindy fussed at me because 
I go, oh no, 12 o'clock. Three hours of reading scripture, three hours of praising and confessing, and then the preacher preached. These were preacher people that were hungry for the word of God. Okay? <clears throat> Verse 4 says, <coughs> excuse me, then stood up upon the stairs of the Levites, Jeshua and Bani and Cadmiel and Shabaniah, Bunai, Sheri, Baya, Bani, and Shanani, and cried with their loud voice unto the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua and Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabani, Sheri, Baya, Hodijah, Shabaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever, and blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above blessing and praise. Okay? Now we're going to hear the sermon. Look for the roller coaster ride. Basically, what he's trying to warn them. He said, What you're going to go through is nothing more than maybe 20 other generations have gone through. Are you going to learn from it? Those that don't learn from history are cursed to repeat it. You going to learn from it or not? <clears throat> thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven and the heaven of our heavens, with all their hosts, the earth, and all things that are therein, the seas, and all that is therein, and thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abraham. He snuck a lecture in there, didn't he? Okay. Who didst choose Abram, Abram and brought, broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gave us him the name Abraham, and found us his heart faithful before thee, and made us the covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Gergashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. Okay? So he reminds them, he says, I made a promise with Abraham. I says, I was going to give him a promised land. He said, he gave him the promised land. And to see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard us their cry in the Red Sea. Here's kind of the first dip in the roller coaster. And showed us signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of his land, for thou knewest that thou dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get thee a name as it is this day. <clears throat> and thou didst divide the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and persecutors thou threwest into the deeps as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou lettest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, and in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they go. Basically, he's going to tell them, as he says, I delivered you out of bondage of Egypt. I did all these miracles. I took you through the Red Sea. When the Egyptians chased after you, they sunk in the bottom like stone, and you were delivered. <clears throat> How are they going to respond? They're going to respond with rebellion. Okay? Thou camest also upon Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gavest them right judgments, and true laws, good statutes, and commandments. 
and madest known unto them thy holy Sabbath, and commandest them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses thy servants, and gavest them bread from heaven for their hunger, and broughtest them forth water from out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go and to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give. But, oh, I hate that word, but. You know what that word but means? It means stop. We're going to go in a completely different direction. But they and our forefathers dealt proudly and hardened their hearts, hardened their necks, and hearkened not to the commandments, and refused to obey neither the mindful of thy wonders that thou didst in the midst of them, but hardened their necks, and in that rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, forsookest them not. He put them through some pain, but he didn't forsake them. <clears throat> Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had brought, wrought great provocations. Yet thou and thy manifold mercies forsook them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the night, in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for thy first. Yea, forty years did thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, and their feet swelled not. Moreover, thou gavest them kingdoms and nations, and didst divide them into the corners, so they possessed the land of Sihon, and the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of the Og, king of Bashan. You know, basically what he's saying? He's saying, I judged you for 40 years. But even during that 40 years, you still had clothes. Your feet didn't swell. Your clothes didn't get old. I gave you food. I gave you water. I gave you leadership. And I gave you instruction. My friends, that's pretty good provision even in a time of judgment, isn't it? <clears throat> So we might not like what things are going on right now here in our own country, but I think he's still blessing his people. We still can find something to be thankful for. Verse 23. See, this is a big picture sermon that, that he's, uh, he's preaching. <coughs> Their children also multiplied us, thou as the stars of heaven, and brought us them into the land concerning which thou hast promised to their fathers that they should go and possess it. He didn't bless them with something else. He blessed them with a lot of children. So the children went in and possessed the land and thou subduest before them and the inhabitants of the land of Canaan and gavest them into their hands and the kings and the people in the lands. Uh, let me skip down to verse 25. I want to kind of finish up this one section. I'm not going to read the whole sermon. I'll encourage you to do that. Verse 25 says, And they took strong cities, a fat land, and possessed houses full of God, goods, wells digged, vineyards, and olive yards, and trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled. This is dangerous. And became fat. Now, I'm not talking about overweight like I am, okay? It's talking about having an easy, cushy life. And became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, that's almost like a but. 
Nevertheless, they, they were disobedient, rebelled against thee, and cast thy law behind their backs, and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee, and they wrought great provocations. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies. And we see them going through this cycle over and over and over again. We have a great God. He's a very merciful God. But it's, it's, just, like, <clears throat> it's just like a child. 